more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration and Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is the 20th of October, 2019, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is just after 7 p.m., and on Sundays, that only means one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Heather Forsyth. And I'm Lori Lutz. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we're joined by Shweta Ravisankar. She is a fifth-year PhD candidate in the Cell and Developmental Biology program at the Oregon Health and Sciences University. So we normally interview students only from OSU, but we're having a special episode tonight. Uh, Shweta works at the Oregon National Primate Center Research Center affiliated with OSU, and that is within the Division of Reproductive and Developmental Sciences there. We're so happy that you came on the show. Thank yes. you for coming on. Thank you for making the journey here <laughs> tonight. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me here. It was a rainy drive, maybe. Yeah. It was actually pretty straightforward. And yeah, it was only about an hour and a half. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. So uh, you, your research is related to, uh, brought in terms of broader impacts, it's related to in vitro fertilization. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what that is and who would make use of that treatment and then uh, get into a little bit more about your research. Sure. So yeah, in vitro fertilization, uh, this technique was, uh, it came up like more than 40 years ago now. And in layman terms, we can say that it's about uh, putting the female egg and the male sperm in a dish, let it fertilize, and then transfer it back into the uh, woman's uterus or womb so that the embryo uh, can attach and grow. So who uh, would want to get this done is couples who have been trying to get pregnant for about a year and still are not able to get pregnant. They go to the doctor's office and they say, hey, we are not able to get pregnant. So they get a, a number of tests done. And when the doctor feels that, uh, yes, probably uh, they are having fertility issues. So that's when they um, suggest 
uh, infertility treatments and IVF or in vitro, in vitro fertilization is one of those treatments. It's probably not the first treatment that a couple undergoes, maybe the second or third uh, treatment, depending on what their uh, reason for infertility is. Um, it can be caused by female and male factors. And there are also a lot of cases of unexplained infertility of where the doctor or the couple does not understand what's actually happening. So what are some of the reasons that would um, cause couples to have problems with um, um, getting pregnant and needing in vitro fertilization? Right. Uh, so just just not just for in vitro fertilization, but for any infertility treatment, mm-hmm. um, from a female uh, factor perspective, it can be that probably she's not ovulating, which means through uh, her period, uh, about the middle uh, of a period, she releases an, an egg that is capable of fertilization. Some females don't undergo that process, and so there is no ovulation, so no release of egg. So maybe it's developed in the ovary, but it's not released. So they don't, they don't even know that. Um, so some it, it might be the quality of eggs is not good. Um, for male factors, it might be that the sperm don't, does not swim as fast uh, to reach the egg to fertilize it, or uh, the sperm count is uh, low, or there might there are also now uh, they are also screening for many genetic uh, reasons because of which the couple could be infertile. So yeah, there are so many more reasons, but yeah. But your your research is looking specifically at. Um some of these causes that influence um, the like like with diet and things like that and that can influence the um, the woman in that way so. yeah so my research is um, mainly focused on looking at uh, the ovary and looking at how can we get a uh, a good egg, the golden egg that can <laughs> give us uh, a good quality blastocyst or an embryo that that can then implant into the uterus. Um, and I'm looking at a few aspects here. I'm looking at the environment in which that egg develops inside what is called as an ovarian follicle. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the fluid in the follicle and trying to correlate if there are metabolites in the fluid that can uh, indicate what the oocyte is going to do, what the oocyte decides. Do I want to fertilize? Do I not want to fertilize? What it's going to do? Uh, And yes, I'm also looking at impact of consumption of uh, high fat diet for a very short duration for about six to eight months uh, in rhesus macaque monkeys, of course, uh, and how that impacts the quality of egg um, and it's further development after fertilization. And the, another aspect that I'm looking at is uh, the long-term impact of a high-fat diet or having high levels of testosterone uh, in the body and how, how that will impact uh, at the level of the development of the ovarian follicle or the egg itself. Like, Yeah. So you're looking at these high fat diets and that's um, trying to mimic more of like an American like or a Western style diet. So is that um, it's are you finding that that is having a negative impact on fertility? So uh, there are so many aspects of fertility, right? So but then, Mm -hmm. yes, we are seeing that it is having a negative impact on certain factors, for example, um, the type 
the the blastocysts that I keep talking about. So it's it's after uh, eight days of development, six to eight days of uh, fertilization post development in rhesus macaque monkeys, which will be about five to six days in uh, women. Uh, so we do see that the quality or the uh, the sorry the number of blastocysts that we get after IVF drastically reduces after even short-term consumption of high-fat diet. And I think that's really um, valuable because as a couple, uh, when you're undergoing fertility treatments and you go to the clinic, as it is, the success rates are really low. So if if the success rates are going to be even lower, um, as it is, it's only less than 50% or near 40%. So if it's going to be even lower, then it's not good. So it's, I think, for a couple, it's better to know uh, what kind of if 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 this diet is going to influence their treatment uh, plans or anything like that. Yeah. So translationally, since you're looking at just a short term period of eating a high fat diet, that would mean for that would mean for us, I guess, that if you haven't if you've been eating a diet like this for your whole life. Ver- but then you stop doing that and you get really healthy and you start eating, you know, not a high fat diet in preps, preparatory reasons for getting pregnant. Will this research is showing that that maybe doesn't matter. What matters was everything leading up to that point. So that's a very good question. And um, we are not doing diet reversal for this project that I'm studying okay. to see mm-hmm. how uh, probably if they go on a standard chow diet, then uh, are, is this going to be restored to what it was before? That's that's not something that we're looking at in this project. Uh, but uh, the long-term project that I spoke about, uh, the center has plans to do diet reversal for those monkeys. And they've been on this diet for about five to six years now since they hit uh, their puberty or around that time. So the center does have plans of reversing the diet and looking at if uh, things are going to improve from there or what actually happens. And as a matter of fact, in the IVF clinics, they do suggest uh, uh, a rigorous uh, exercise or diet uh, pattern. Of course, there is nothing sure shot that this is what would happen, but Mm -hmm. that's what we are trying to study. Yeah. So I want to ask you about the monkeys. So you are working at this primate center, which is only one of five in the U.S., right? So other places have been shut down or maybe there's funding problems. Can you talk about what it's like to work there and what what are the monkeys doing, hanging out? Do you hang out with them? So, uh, yes, uh, it's it's an amazing place to work in because it's unique. It's a unique uh, mm-hmm. place to work and you work with the rhesus macaque monkeys, which are so similar to uh, women, at least in reproductive physiology. And so um, it, the monkeys are, I don't interact directly with the monkeys, uh, but the animal care staff uh, at, at our center is extremely well-trained to the extent that they know when the monkey is kind of stressed, when it's not, when the monkey, she or he is not behaving uh, properly. (laughs) Uh, 
the monkeys have names and so it's not like uh, what is what is it doing right, right. Uh, mm-hmm. like what is love it's it's it's, it's all names right it's mm-hmm. oh today today sam did this and that's what they're talking i'm like who's sam oh sam is that monkey i'm like oh okay all right like <laughs> that, that's how that's how i felt in the beginning when i joined the center and then i i realized that you need to take care of the monkeys that way and i mean they need to be uh comfortable being a part of our research yeah. it's not that we want this it's my way or highway no it's not mm-hmm. that way so it's it's uh, even even to uh, undergo uh, the uh, hormonal stimulations required for the experiments that i do they need to be trained to show their hand for blood draws and injections oh, okay. if they don't mm-hmm. want it they don't uh get it like wow that's yeah that's so interesting yeah and i imagine that it you know keeping the monkeys comfortable and happy also directly influences um their reproductive success yeah absolutely um and i think this is we've seen this back uh, in our center and others have also reported this that um if if they're if they're probably stressed then probably uh, our outcomes are not uh, as good uh and that's fine if it's like one monkey we don't get some kind of result from her but then if that's happening over like repetitively then we know that uh, probably they don't want this kind of uh, treatment right now and they they want to be more trained and more comfortable with all this yeah but um, yeah but but then if you come to our center and uh, we need to have prior permission from the animal care staff and uh, the facility but then we can uh, we get to tour a particular uh, segment of the center where we see where the monkeys are and how they are playing and they have their own open ground to play and it's it's really um, it's really relaxing in a sense to <laughs> you know just see that it, it's really nice yeah cool so walk us through your actual research a uh, big picture and what you do on a day-to-day basis. So, you actually work with two different labs and you get so the monkeys they go through, they get a hormonal treatment, you get their eggs, and then what? Yeah, so they go through a hormonal treatment similar to what uh, a woman would go through in an IVF clinic. uh after that we collect their eggs and after we collect their eggs um i uh do ivf uh with the egg and the sperm and uh, then i let them uh develop for the first 6 or 8 days depending on uh which day they form a blastocyst so uh one cool thing is that in this time frame of development after fertilization we mostly add them to a time lapse scope And so when we put them on the time lapse scope the scope clicks pictures every 5 minutes of development and then we compile a video of it uh, and that's really important uh, because we are able to see uh, after the after the development that did they uh, have any morphological uh, uh things that we need to note about like for example did they fragment while uh dividing or was there multipolar division which happens um usually a cell would devel- uh, divide from 1 to 2 and then 2 to 3 and 3 to 4 but sometimes it happens that it just goes from 1 to 3 or 1 to 4 directly so uh in those cases we try to uh freeze the sample uh down and then later do sequencing analysis to see if uh, a multipolar division 
or a fragmented uh, division has caused any like chromosomal abnormalities or by DNA sequencing and um, and RNA sequencing to check what kind of genes are upregulated or downregulated. So. Um, this, this is the molecular biology aspect of after we've collected the samples and uh, we, of course, for this eight days, we check how many cleaved, how many formed a blastocyst. So blastocyst formation rates and those things are really important uh, for, for our research and also in uh, translationally in the clinics. So you're really looking at, you're trying to find the good egg and doing that part specifically. By the way, um, if you're interested in seeing an image of these blastocysts, we um, we weren't up, able to upload the video, but we do have a screenshot of the blastocysts up on the blog, so you should totally check that out. So you're really getting a big picture of development and fertilization, because you have you start with the eggs, you see them in the dish, and then uh, you see the morphology of them, what the whole cells look like, what the monkeys look like, how healthy they are. And then you also get down into a really, really small like molecular basis, DNA, RNA, maybe whatever else, very small things. And <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know how you feel that is beneficial as opposed to narrowing in maybe more even more specifically on one time shot of fertilization and development so um as i mentioned ivf success rates are already pretty low right right and mm -hmm. there are many um there is a lot of research out there looking at uh the embryo quality after fertilization and which one they can uh, transfer and which one they can't. So we are looking at the time point uh, at the very beginning when we collect the oocytes itself. So the success rate can decrease at any point during this entire process. Uh, our, our goal here is to look at the competency of the egg itself and in a non-invasive manner. So we are not actually doing anything to the egg or the developing embryo, but we want to look at the fluid in which it literally bathes during development. So it communicates with the fluid that I want this nutrients. I don't want this anymore. Like what's going on? So, so if we get the uh, fluid from that follicle, then uh, we feel like we can determine uh, maybe a pathway or a particular set of uh, metabolites uh, that say that, uh, hey, I am present in the follicular fluid because my egg did not develop well and they did not use me or they used this pathway and that's why I'm present here. And look, my egg did this. So we are uh, comparing the fluid to the corresponding follicular uh, oocyte or egg development. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's really very beneficial looking at the entire gamete because we know that what was there and what that egg became. So it's like looking at the entire spectrum. And I have, I'm really fortunate that I'm a part of two labs that work on the different aspects, but similar things, right? Mm -hmm. So Hannibal's lab looks at the ovary and, uh, studies what is important for ovulation or what is important for ovulation of a good egg. Uh, and uh, Shava's lab 
studies so i after i fertilize the egg what is happening during that development uh, are there any chromosomal abnormalities are there any morphological abnormalities so by being a student in both these labs i get to look at what what i was and what i become later the entire story of the egg you know mm-hmm. uh, i hope that answers yeah, your sure. question yeah i want to ask you kind of a harder a hard question okay so if we let's say we figure out all the metabolites that make the best egg so how will that impact women choosing to go ivf go through ivf or maybe donating eggs or maybe companies that make metabolites maybe could supplement the eggs what do you think the maybe bigger long term down the road impacts of finding out what a perfect egg should look like right being? right so um if we have in mind uh, a set of metabolites or if you are really lucky one metabolite i don't think that's going to happen <laughs> but like a set set of pathways that uh, need to be uh, at, upregulated at a certain level in the follicular fluid for the egg to become good if we are able to figure that out then uh, the ultimate goal would be like an insulin test where you just punch it in your skin and you are able to see the level of insulin mm-hmm. at the time of oocyte collection uh, we can do a quick assay like an elisa kind of assay f- f- in the follicular fluid for that particular metabolite or metabolites and know their uh, exact concentration or the range of the concentration and this side if this egg uh, is going to uh, give a viable embryo that can be then transferred or not so what happens is in this you can reduce the number of eggs that you're going to fertilize which will also reduce the cost increase the success of ivf so a couple that's undergoing ivf will not feel that uh, you got 20 eggs from me or i don't know 10 eggs from me and fertilized all of them but i got only two embryos at the end right then it's it's not that feeling because it's it's a huge uh, uh financial and emotional burden on a couple that's undergoing ivf so mm-hmm. that is one aspect of it and the other aspect of it is um uh, um uh, this is something that i'm just thinking about as we are talking right so uh, uh girls uh who have cancer treatment at a very young age nowadays um it's it's as i'm saying nowadays because now it's becoming uh, more aware that you can uh, do fertility preservation so mm-hmm. maybe those eggs at that mm-hmm. point when you've not even hit puberty are immature so uh, if you know what are the things in the follicular fluid that might uh, have caused the eggs to mature uh properly and form a competent egg maybe when when they want to get pregnant uh later later in their life after their treatments if their for if their ovarian tissue was preserved then probably the follicle can be grown in a media containing those metabolites to yield a better egg sure that's so, so fascinating i don't i don't think i really realized that um young girls yeah. who were you know maybe planning to get pregnant later in life i mean that's probably not something they're considering at that point but having that option <laughs> yeah. that before undergoing treatment that their their immature eggs are preserved yeah right. they are so preserved so there is like treatment kills the the eggs yeah, right treatment kills all cells so there is no guarantee that wow. 
anything's going to be preserved so yeah it's 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 in fact uh, a group in group at our center is now researching uh, if you uh, preserve immature eggs and uh if you transplant it elsewhere in the body or something is it able to become a mature egg and it's really cool to wow. uh, see the kind of research very a very sad situation but yeah, yeah it's 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 if we are able to help uh that those kind of situations i think that that would be great cool yeah, yeah. okay uh let's shift gears okay a bit and talk about your dancing because you spend a lot of time in the lab but you also teach dance yes and love it so and you have a performance that's coming up really soon right this yep. coming weekend this coming weekend yeah. <laughs> uh tell us um, tell us about that okay cool so uh this there's a part that i'm always excited about <laughs> uh, yeah dance and science have gone hand in hand for me uh i'm really passionate about both of them uh so dance i i'm an indian classical dancer and the dance form that i perform uh learn perform teach is bharatanatyam um so the performance that i'm going to be uh doing is uh I'm I got a residency fellowship uh from an organization called New Expressive Works in Portland and so we are four choreographers who will be presenting at this performance uh, a 20 minute PT uh, piece each. Oh, wow. So um it's a long dance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh so usually my performances are one and a half hours. So. Oh, wow. But then I'm really excited about this piece. It's very special for me because I'll be performing um on depression. my the topic of my performance is depression the new old emotion because it's it's like it's always it feels like it's new when i'm talking to somebody they're like oh really does all this happen does it and i feel uh, i felt the need to do this because i personally uh, went through a depression like state when i moved uh, to portland in 2015 and i started graduate school there was a lot going on at that point and plus unknown city no friends a lot of coursework uh, the weather did not help yeah. <laughs> i moved here in september and then it started raining and it became dark and so yeah so i i i went through a tough phase at that point and i did not know if it was okay to talk uh, to anyone about it so i did not talk to my my sisters my family my my parents i did not talk to anybody about it especially because i know growing up in india it's a big taboo topic mm-hmm. uh they, they just say it'll be fine just just carry on with life right mm-hmm. and i saw that that's the scene here also for many people uh but i was really fortunate that ohsu has a very good um behavioral uh uh health department uh in which we can go and talk to people so so yes i went through a very tough phase the first quarter and um, Uh, at that point then i started talking to my uh, family about it i went and spoke to my advisor about it and i told her that uh, uh this, this is becoming very difficult for me uh, and i i i personally did not want to uh, go on medications for depression uh, i i'm not saying it's 
good or bad or everyone's choice is everyone's choice but then i did not want to so i i had a very tough fight uh, against depression i daily morning i used to tell myself it's fine i'm going to be all right it's going to be all right and i literally had to push myself to get out of the house and so uh, this so this dance is very special for me in uh, uh, informing people that uh, what a person might go through from my perspective and uh, and that it's important to be supportive uh, it's important to uh, say it will be all right but uh, not make that person feel that uh, uh, it will be all right so i don't understand what you're doing like right. that is mm-hmm. not the feeling that one wants so yeah sure. if you want to read more about shweta's journey with depression she has shared with us several blogs that she's written and we have links to those on the blog as well and i think especially as you know fellow graduate students and being in this high pressure um environment that this is something that is um very relatable to a lot of people i mean even even undergraduates and i guess um a lot of other people too outside of academia. Yeah. So, and you mentioned, you know, having really great resources at OHSU. Yeah. And I just want to say that we also have really great resources <laughs> nice. here at OSU. Um, so if um, listeners out there aren't aware of those, um, you can look into CAPS and we have a lot of really great programs that um, I know a lot of a lot of people that utilize those here. So nice. Would nice. recommend. Yes. That's <laughs> nice. And it always helps to have advisors who are willing to listen to you and help you through it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, we didn't really touch on your um, your background before coming to OHSU. So can you tell us a little bit how you ended up here at, o- at OHSU? Sure. Uh, so starting from the beginning, beginning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love biology growing up. Um, I love biology and math. And uh, I chose to stick to biology. Uh, because that does not bring physics with it. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I love biology. And then, so I, fast forwarding to my college life, I uh, picked uh, bi- um, to do B- uh, B-Tech in biotechnology. And so there I learned about industrial biotech and various aspects, animal, plant biology. And I realized that I'm really interested in zoology or mainly human anatomy and human physiology. I was very mm-hmm. much interested in those uh, classes. So after my BTEC, I uh, worked uh, in a molecular biology lab to understand more about, so what are the kind of projects going on now in this area and what, what are people doing? So I, I did basic molecular biology, PCR, and DNA extraction, and mm-hmm. all that, and learned all that. And then I decided to do my master's in biotech, uh, in medical biotechnology. And uh, that's where I learned more about stem cells and uh, fertilization and embryo development, like all theory about it. And I was mm-hmm. really fascinated with stem cells, the idea that uh, it can keep growing. Uh, it's it's amazing and then it can decide one day that I want to become the cell and that one day is not a random day it has to be properly functioned I was like how does it know what's going on <laughs> uh, and then I realized that that's what happens after fertilization uh, it's a bunch of cells that's just multiplying and then one day it knows that I want to be this part of the body or that mm-hmm. part of the body and so it really fascinated me it blew my mind so after that I um, worked at a a stem cell banking company in their research and development. uh, And I did a few projects on uh, uh, 
type of stem cell called mesenchymal stem cells and then uh, at that at that time uh, a lot of my family and friends were uh, undergoing fertility treatments and so this entire uh, embryology aspect of theory that i had learned i was seeing what's happening um, not at the embryo development stage but then it really impacted me and i was like i want to learn more about this so i approached a fertility clinic and i did an internship over there for about 6 months to understand what exactly happens how the couples feel or uh, what's going on in the clinic side of it and when they transfer the embryos and stuff like that and so uh, after that uh, i applied for a masters uh, at san jose state university over here uh, so before this all my education was in india and after this i applied for this masters uh, which had uh, the option of doing a year and year long internship funded by uh, California Institute of Regenerative Medicine so uh, in the two years of masters i finished my course work in a year and then the second year uh, i worked at stanford uh, in the sebastiano lab and uh, Yeah, uh, Dr. Vittorio Sebastiano, he introduced me to the uh, world of uh, embryology in practical uh, use, right? I'd only uh, read about it. So that's where I actually uh, worked with, actually saw a thought in embryo under the scope and I was like, I was just amazed to look at the oocyte or a three cell or a blastocyst I was like wow at that I think that is the point where I was like we come from this one cell like one cell becomes so many cells and we are studying this entire body and everything is so different I was just super fascinated by that and um, I decided to do my PhD at that point I always wanted to do it but then before joining that internship program I was like maybe I should just go start a job after this and stop studying after all <laughs> but then i was like so inspired and i i was like no i want to do a phd um so i applied to labs that specifically work in this kind of uh, research area and that's where i met uh, dr shawn shavis uh, in whose lab i am right now and she introduced me to dr john hennebolt and uh, they had a project uh, which which i could be a part of and yeah in these past 4 years i think i've been a part of many projects in those labs and they've been really encouraging so yeah that's been my journey and i look forward to being in uh, this field uh, of infertility or fertility research if possible and yeah and have my dance company and dance. So. <laughs> Amazing. A very well balanced life. I see for you. I don't yeah. know if it's uh, it's I struggle I struggle between the two but then I then it's fine. Yeah, with family support it's yeah. it's all good. Okay. <laughs> well, we have two traditions on our show and um the first one is for you to give us a bit of advice. So this can be for your former self or um undergraduate graduate students. people in the community whoever that might be and um so go ahead and tell us who your advice is for and what advice you have yeah so so advice more <laughs> out of experience i don't know <laughs> so it is definitely for my former self it is also for anybody who's listening actually it's not for like a specific set of people just that um be be content be satisfied with what you have like 
try to reach a stage where you feel like I'm happy with what I have. Yes, I want to achieve X, Y, Z more things, but I'm also happy with what I have because if we keep thinking that, oh, I don't have this, oh, I don't have that all the time, then it's just going to increase your anxiety. And I always joke that anxiety and depression are like my two sides who are sitting on the side and we don't, <laughs> I don't even know when they creep into me. And so we need to be aware to just keep them away. So just, just try to be satisfied with what you have and uh, they'll keep knocking on you and they can't get into you. <laughs> I think that's great advice. Our second tradition is to pick a song. So tell us about the song you chose and why you picked it. Yeah. So the song that I chose is a Hindi song. Uh, it's, it is Kisi Ki Muskurahato Pe Ho Nisar. And um, it, it basically uh, says Jina Isi Ka Naam Hai, which means this is how you live. Uh, and it says... Uh, help help others if you if, if you see someone else smiling be happy for them uh, i i am not very rich uh, by money materialistically but i'm very rich in my thoughts try to be rich in your thoughts try to like it's a very happy song uh, if you look at the video it won't look that happy but then the guy <laughs> is actually like I'm very happy in my life and I want to be happy in my life, like that kind of song. So it's my go-to song whenever I want to uh, cheer up or something. I'm like, yeah, I mean, life is not bad. Why do I, why am I thinking life is bad? Life is great. <laughs> so yeah, amazing. Well, thank you one more time for coming down from Portland, coming on the show. It's been really good to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.